Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Ezra, the first chapter again. There's a tendency, I think we all have, to think that the real work of life is the work that's done with our eyes closed and our hands folded. And that that's the work that can be called spiritual and that anything our bodies are involved with is sort of a little bit suspect. And especially when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, that uh, yes, we have to have buildings, but it's not really spiritual. If we were really spiritual, we'd be able to worship anywhere and we wouldn't need facilities. And uh, as as a pleasant side note, we also wouldn't have to give money to facilities. But that's not really at the heart of our motivation. It's just that uh, reality is spiritual. And so here we go into a time where after a number of years of seeking the direction of the Lord and a number of years of sacrificially giving, we now have uh, money to proceed, land to proceed, plans to proceed. And the question comes, is the Lord in this or isn't he? And would we have any reason from Scripture to believe that the Lord would be in the building of a church home for a body of believers? This is the reason that we are studying Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is our second week. And we saw last week that these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, originally, when you go back into the Hebrew Bible, they were one book because they really are one story. And uh, for many years, people thought that it was the chronicler, the one who wrote Chronicles, uh, who was the author of Ezra and Nehemiah. And now uh, what we call, quote, modern scholars, unquote, tell us that they're not so sure. I got a kick last night out of reading. Um, In one of the commentaries, somebody sang that, uh, I think the quote was, quote, modern scholars are virtually unanimous in saying, unquote. And uh, I thought, boy, that's quite an authority claim, isn't it? Modern scholars are virtually unanimous. I enjoy the, the word virtually, you know, because I was, I was afraid it was an unvirtual unanimity, <laughs> you know. Um, it's fun to preach to your children. You'll notice me looking over here as I preach. <laughs> Um, but then, what, 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 what would cause you to say such a thing? You're, you know, like for instance, you're at the dinner table and you say, your mother and I are virtually unanimous in saying to you. And that's pretty pathetic. You know that that, 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 that dad's desperate. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, there must be something very important that they're virtually unanimous on. As a matter of fact, there must not be virtual unanimity. Because, you know, if somebody's saying there's virtual unanimity, the one thing you know is there isn't virtual unanimity. Well, I think that the issue is, and that I won't tell you what the, the, the specifics are, but I think the case is that uh, it's something that only recently have modern scholars repented of thinking differently on, and so they want to make sure that the trajectory stays firm, you know. Well, when we look at the history of studying the authorship and a number of issues of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there's been a lot of debate. Uh, one of the issues I haven't touched, but you've seen it coming up in these, this first chapter, is the, 
as I read the prophecies pointing to this, is that they say 70 years. And so there's a lot of debate over what that 70 years would be. Well, there isn't any debate that these books were two, were originally one book, which had been split into two around the time of Jerome's Vulgate. Uh, it got split. And you need to keep in mind as you read the Bible that most of your Bible was just a flowing of text. It wasn't broken down into the neat verses and the neat chapters and, and separations that you have today. Uh, be very suspicious of yourself uh, if you find yourself breaking up Scripture into portions that go down easily. And uh, this particular portion, you'll see as we go through it, it really is a coherent whole for convenience sake. We break it into Ezra and Nehemiah, and there is some rationale behind that. Um, both books, Ezra and Nehemiah, this whole section, is the story of the Jews coming back from exile. And that's at the center of these books, um, as the Exodus is at the center of the book of Exodus. Name, and that's why it's named what it is. So the Exodus, again, is at the center of Ezra and Nehemiah. The only difference is, instead of the action being the name of the book, it's the two central men that are involved in uh, the work of these books, whose names have been used for the labels for the books. Now, it was the Babylonian Empire that had come and had taken Judah down in the south into captivity. And you remember that the prophets had warned them about their sin. They had escaped much longer than Israel. The northern kingdom had escaped. But eventually, uh, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar overran Judah. He sacked her capital, Jerusalem. He blinded her king, Jedekiah. And then he took both the king and his subjects off to Babylon. But a lot of time and a lot of action in the ancient world had passed since then. And now it wasn't the Babylonians that were in power, it was the Persians. And the leader of the Persians was a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus is at the center of the beginning of this story. Um, in this book, you will see that there are three main men who are involved uh, there's Zerubbabel, and he's the one for the first six chapters. And then there is Ezra, and then finally Nehemiah. Now, I want to read again to us the story of Cyrus's decree and the response of the Jews in Persia. And we find it again in verses 1 to 11, the entire first chapter of Ezra 1. Let us hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says the Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah." Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone 
whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. All those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from all that was given as a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, again, I want to rehearse some of the things that we saw last week. I want them to be fixed in your mind so you watch them as we go through this book. Last week, we said there are three main theological themes to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. First, the theme that is most prominent at the first verse of this text, and that's the theme that there is only one true God. God, the God of heavens and the earth, he is the one who made this world as we see him gather his people together. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Moses who rescued Israel from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He is Israel's Jehovah. He is the Lord of the heavens. He created the universe and he rules it. He rules all things and without fail, he will order them in such a way that the words of his prophets are fulfilled. We take so lightly this book of God. And then we watch, and I think this is the strongest argument in favor of our view of Scripture, which is that it is completely inspired and without error as it was originally written down. I think the strongest argument for that is to see the constant submission of our Lord Jesus Christ as he goes through his life to this book. Jesus Christ consistently says, I have to do it because it was predicted I would do it, and I'm going to do what the Bible says I'm going to do. And it seems so incongruous to us moderns who take lightly all authority to think of the Son of God, the one whose spirit inspired this word, coming and living his life in submission to the word. And it's weird. Why would he do that? Didn't he know that he had a life to be actualized? And yet we see him consistently living his life. We see him quoting specific texts. We see him, even when he's at the edge of being killed, he takes the most obscure text in the book of Psalms and uses it as sort of a riddle to tie up the Pharisees and Sadducees in knots. Even at his moment of death, this is his defense, and his whole life is a fulfillment. Well, the God of the universe is pleased to order the actions of King Cyrus in such a way that a weeping prophet who was laughed at by the people of God, let alone the head of Persia, that his words specifically would be fulfilled. And so we see Cyrus, wonderful uh, authority and power of the whole empire of Persia standing behind this man, uh, a man who had climbed to the top, a man who had no one to fear, a real man. 
And all he's doing is just fulfilling the words that God inspired the prophet Jeremiah to give. That's it. And so he has, as he sees it and his, as his advisors see it, he has a good uh, foreign policy strategy. And his foreign policy strategy is that uh, contrary to the past emperors, the past kings like Nebuchadnezzar, he's not going to just completely annihilate and obliterate all the diversity. You know, he's into diversity. And so he says, hey, we're going to have a pluralistic empire now, right? We're going to have all of you able to manifest the particularities of your racial and ethnic and religious communities. And uh, we're going to make a decree across the empire that all of you are to go back and, and recover your roots. And uh, so he just went through all the groups and began to tell them to recover their roots. Now, we read it and we think, oh, well, that was probably something unique to the Jews. And he must have been a God-fearer, you know, how they refer to Cornelius in the book of Acts. But that wasn't the case. And we know this because uh, after, you know, many, many men said that, you know, we'd never find any corroboration for anything that's in these books, all of a sudden there was this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder that was discovered. And it's this little thing of, uh, I think, clay that's now in the British Museum. I said last week that you can go see it. And it doesn't record for us what we see here about the Jews. We see here the decree he gave about the Jews. But this is more general. And here is what is written on this cylinder in the British Museum from Cyrus. He, he wrote on it this. He says, I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and established for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Bebo for a long life for me. To Marduk, my lord, may they say this, Cyrus the king who worships you and Cambyses his son. In other words, what's going on here is Cyrus says... I've done this all over my empire, and now may all of the local deities and, and, and the people that worship them, may they all say, long live the king, Cyrus. The more the merrier. The more gods in my camp, the better off I am. Because he's a very broad-minded man. And he knows that religion is, is useful. And he wants to last a long time. And so, again, think of it as you would in an overview uh, it isn't likely that he had converted to Judaism. It isn't likely that he worshipped the only true God. There, there isn't the possibility that he was uh, more committed and that the other was just foreign policy, the other nations. But this was his policy across his empire. And the Cyrus Cylinder shows that almost identical decrees are given for other nations and their gods. And it's very interesting as, as you read this decree and then you see how he treats the Jews to think that um, today, the, we have a different way of handling money, but back then, the real wealth of a nation was in its houses of worship. And this is why it's so significant that at first, all the treasures of the local temples are brought into the temple of the gods of Nebuchadnezzar. All right? That is the national treasury. And the national treasury of Israel is brought into the national treasury of Nebuchadnezzar and it's in the presence of his gods. Now, again, they just view it as, as a way of consolidating the wealth so that they have more power. All right? But how do we view it? Well, we view 
that these sacred vessels set apart to the worship of the true God go into the temple of an idol and are desecrated in the presence of gods who are not gods. All right? But to them, again, it's just an empire. You know, they're just consolidating the wealth of the nation. It's like, you know, Fort Leavenworth, you know, all the gold. You know, it's all there. And so he, he goes into his national treasury and he blows it up and he sends it off to all these localized places, has all the cults start up again, you know, and he says, all right, now all of you pray for me, you know, because aren't I benevolent? You know, I, I'm a very pluralistic and tolerant man, and I think all of you should be able to get into whatever thing you're into, you know. Put yourself into his mind, it's not hard. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like what we live with today. It sounds like what every leader claims to do. He, he, he believes that there's no such thing as truth or falsehood, right or wrong, that there's no such thing as a false god or a true god, because, of course, you can't have a true God, unless there are false gods, and this is Cyrus. But what we see is what? Verse 1, that he did all this what? What does it say? In order what? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and that the Lord, it says, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. There's an old saying, and the saying is, he who laughs last, laughs best. And we must remember that the Bible presents a picture of God laughing. In fact, the Bible says that he laughs them to scorn. It's not just a little giggle. That God looks at the nations. Turn to Psalm 2. And we see how God views the benevolence of men such as Cyrus who think that they're into diversity and that they'll uh, be very tolerant while acknowledging that none of it is true and that it's all simply useful. You know, when you go back into the uh, time of our nation's uh, founding and you read references to God, don't ever forget that many of those references are simply leaders who think God is useful. We read the word God and we're so blown away reading it in, you know, primary sources. We think, well, you know, they must have been pious men because look, they... Now, what you'll read a lot of them saying is exactly what Cyrus says, which is, you know, God and the morality that comes from him is a very useful thing to govern a people. And really, without God and morality, something that really scares the little people. It's very hard to govern them. Very old way of governing. But look at Psalm 2. How does God view this? He says, Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now, what's going on? What's going on, guys, is this. God is installing his king on Mount Zion, his holy mountain. And he is using Cyrus. The one thing Cyrus was sure was never happening with him was that he was used. 
Cyrus was the great user. And he wasn't. Because it says here that he did it in order, verse 1, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, and that the Lord stirred up his spirit, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. There is one true God, and beside him there is no other. Jeremiah says it, Psalm 96, Are there any among the idols of the nations who give rain, or can the heavens grant showers? Is it not you, O Lord our God? Therefore we hope in you, for you are the one who has done all these things. If God sends the rain, he's the only true God. It can't be a bunch of gods fighting over the controls. And then, excuse me, that was Jeremiah. And then Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among those who are Christians and Jews. But is that what it says? It says, tell of his glory among the what? The nations. His wonderful deeds among Western Judeo-Christian peoples. That's not what it says. It says, tell of his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods radical exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will brook no competitors. He is a jealous God. He does not allow us to go and wink at the God of Islam. He does not allow us to wink at the ancestors of Japan. He is the true God. I'm not saying this because I'm a a white supremacist what do they call people? Uh, oh, they have very sophisticated words. Ethnocentric is one of them. You know, I don't say this because I'm a man who has written the scripture according to my own values, all right? But I say this because this is a record of God speaking through holy men of old. And it says that the nations are to hear it, that all men are to listen. It says that God is to be feared above all gods. For And then it says something negative. And we always have to remember that to be biblical Christians, we must say both the positive things that Scripture says and the negative. And it says, for all the gods of the peoples are what? Idols. All the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him all the earth. There's a great pressure on us today to look at the method of Cyrus and to think to ourselves, you know, that does go down smoothly. You know, wouldn't it be nice if our God was a God who, you know, was into giving freedom to all of the diversity that surrounded him, sending them all back home to to, to erect the particularities of their religious tradition, you know? Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if we could be missionaries who would, like, you know, have field trips into each other's temples? 
You know, we'd invite them to come in and, 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 and look at our traditions. And we'd go look at theirs, and then we'd all have a meal together, and everything would be nice. We could go over to Iraq, you know, and say to them, you know, we, we respect uh, Allah, you know, and his prophet Muhammad. And we're almost there, you know, when we say that. We only have to say a few more words, and we become a Muslim. So all you have to say, well, I won't say it, but you just have to say some very simple things. <laughs> Study Islam. You'll know what I'm talking about. All right? So we could go over there and say you know, a few things and act like we were very reverent towards their God and then ask them to come into our worship service and you know, maybe listen to the apostles. And it would be very diverse and pluralistic and inclusive and very tolerant. You know? It would be very, very much like Cyrus. But the Bible comes and it just absolutely obliterates this conceit of the modern, which is really very old. And it says now, God is the God of the heavens and the earth. And uh, it says, uh, there went out a decree in the days of Caesar Augustus that all the world would be taxed. And Caesar Augustus thought he had a foreign policy. He thought he had a revenue service. But what he didn't know was he was simply sending a pregnant woman, the Virgin Mary, to Bethlehem so that the Messiah would be born in his proper place. And so too, Cyrus, oh, he thought he was, he thought he was something. <laughs> but he wasn't. God is God. And he brooks no competitors. Uh, all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And if we're biblical Christians, we will make that confession to those that we love. To not make that confession is for us to wink at the death eternally and spiritually of those we love. We must not buy into the pluralism and diversity, which is the idol of the modern. This God, Jehovah, is the only true God, and he has made a covenant with his people, and he will not fail to keep it. This is the second great doctrinal theme of these books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And third... He has made a covenant with his people and he chooses to use tools or means in his work. Uh, God doesn't just snap his fingers and everything gets done, but he has lowered himself to move holy men of old, to use their personalities, their temperaments, to speak through men with, with uh, clay feet, men who are jars of clay, to accomplish his purposes. He used... Uh, this, this gnarly man, Paul, he used this gnarly man, Peter. He used this timid man, Thomas. He used all of these men in a way that pleased him. So God is the only true God. He has made a covenant with his people, and he uses specific uh, concrete means to accomplish his purpose. And the three great means that we'll see throughout these books are the means of the worship of the assembled people, corporate worship, the means of prayers of God's people, and the means of the holy scriptures which God has inspired. Now, this week I want to examine the very beginning of this project that we're going to watch as it, as it goes from beginning to end. And I want us to look at three things as this project begins. 
Three things we see in chapter 1. First, the people. Second, the provision. And third, the purpose. The people, the provision, and the purpose. Now, first, the people. Who were the people that God worked through? Well, the first six chapters of Ezra deal with the first return of the people of God from exile, but we need to look at who it is who did return from exile. First of all, we need to see not everyone did it. Not everyone's heart was moved. The vast majority would have stayed back in the land. And you remember that Jeremiah said what? Jeremiah said that it would be a remnant. Now, we know from verse 5 the following. It says in verse 5, Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even what? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, I'll probably return to this at some point, but since one of the major attacks on Scripture today is removing all the sex markings everywhere that it refers to men and women specifically, uh, people don't like that because they think that if I say... uh, you men or brothers that the women think, well, that doesn't include me. And the people that guard and lead our, uh, our use of words today are intent upon uh, informing every woman that she is not included in the New Testament when it says brothers. And so we can easily be led to believe that we can give in on this, that it's no big deal. But I want you to notice here what it said. Did you notice it? Every time you run into a sex-specific word, And they would say, no, it's gender-specific and it doesn't refer to biological sexuality. It's just a way of speaking and chairs in this language are female and in that language are male. All right, you know, they go off on all this obscuring, obfuscating trip. All right, but I want you to notice what it says in verse 5. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose. Now, if you were to go ahead and deal with that according to those who want to remove the sex markings of Scripture, what would you do with that? Well, it really is pretty obnoxious. For instance, here in these rows, right here, uh, you will see my household. <laughs> okay? And at this particular weekend, it's pretty intense. It's huge. It includes my mother, who raised me and trained me and fought me when my soul was, was hanging in the balance, all right? So in other words, this is the woman who more than any other woman has had authority over who I am in life, all right? Uh, it also includes my father's sister. Now think of the respect due to my father's sister, Annie Lane. It includes my wife, who is my helpmate, my partner, who has given me my children. And then it includes a set of children who are fairly intimidating. Uh, You know what they're thinking when you make a wrong decision. And sometimes they know you're going to make a wrong decision before you even utter it. Uh, They're not easily led. And then there are one spouse uh, who's taller than I am. And then another spouse who goes to Wheaton College. And then... There, huh? Oh, did I say a spouse? Oh well. Okay, a betrothed. And then there's Rita. Okay, in this in these rows here. Now think about this. Why would why would the Bible speak of the heads of households 
and just relegate them to the status of also-rans. <laughs> you know? They're just the people under the head of the household. Now, why would the Bible do that? Wouldn't it be much more interesting for you to hear who's in my household? You know? Why, why make them subcategories under the man? You know, why? Well, you ask God that question. Because that's what God did. And let me tell you, there's no message of Scripture that isn't useful. As a matter of fact, there's no word of Scripture that is not profitable for correction, for rebuke, for encouragement, in every way. And so it must be that even in this little tiny verse, in, in these little books, this one expression, the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin, and actually, it doesn't say the heads of fathers' households. If you have an NASB 95, you'll see that the word households is in italics. And you know what that means? That means it's not there in the original. So what it really says, it really doesn't make any reference at all to these pews of people. All it says is the heads of fathers. And that is gnarly. I mean, can you feel the scandal of that as a modern you know, think of all these people being relegated to simply, you know, not even showing up. Even the word households isn't there. It's just understood. So it's the heads of fathers. How would we change it? That's a way to help yourself see how scandalous this is to you. Well, the way we'd change it is we would say, um, Tim and Mary Lee and, and Doug and Heather and Joseph and Heidi and Taylor and Michael and Hannah and... Mrs. Joseph Bailey and Miss Elaine Bailey and Rita Cuffey. And we name them all. And what they say is the heads of fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites. You see that? Let me tell you, once you start messing around with Scripture and saying, well, you know, we have a different way of saying it today. Let's make God conform to our habits the meanings you'll lose are huge. And the truth is what? What truth is communicated by this statement, the heads of fathers, that would not be communicated if it said, Tim and Mary Lee and Heather and Archie and Doug, da, 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 da. All right, can you think? What truth would not be communicated if I just simply made that concession to the modern world? Well, who do you think made the decision? I think the heads of fathers made the decision. And I think there were probably many homes where they went home and announced. Do you think that God appeared to Sarah and said, Sarah, get up and go to a land that I will show you? Do you think that Sarah was fully consulted before Abraham obeyed? And if you think so about the beginning of his life of discipleship and faith, what do you think about the time when God came to him and said, Abraham, get up and take the son, your only son, that I have given you, and go and sacrifice him? Do you think that he went and consulted with his wife and got her permission? Now, he might have. We're speaking from silence. But I think there are probably many, many times in my home, in your home, and in the homes of the patriarchs, where it was a man and God, and there was authority, and he was told to do something, whether or not his wife agreed. And there's one time where we know the wife didn't, didn't agree, and what happened to her? 
She was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, that's not demeaning to women. It just shows that there wasn't always unanimity between the husband and wife and major steps that had to be taken for the salvation and the protection of the home. Now, we have a similar situation with uh, Nabal and Abigail. And there it was the woman who shone and the man who was a complete uh, Nabal. (laughs) Don't name your son Nabal. But I want you to see Every verse of the Bible, every word of the verse, every construction is inspired. It is not an accident. It is not being written that way because back then they were patriarchal and today we're matriarchal or egalitarian. It's written that way because even that language communicates something that is good for you. And so who was it that went up? Who was it that left? the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even what? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred. God had moved their hearts and so they got to it. It was their desire to rebuild the temple of God and they desired this more than what? Now picture this. They desired this more than all of the wealth that surrounded them in Persia, okay? All the wealth. What is the life of a people that are living in captivity? Think about that for a second. In Vichy, France, what was the life of the French? Was it just death and starvation? Or were there certain perquisites that went along with cooperating with the Nazi authorities? And how about the Orthodox priests, the patriarchs, and the the priests of Orthodoxy in the Soviet Union during the years of captivity to communism? Did all of the leaders of the Christian church, the Orthodox church, did they all uh, simply have death and starvation and suffering? One of the very interesting things that happened is the files of the KGB were opened. Do you know what it was? All of a sudden, the record of the very, very precise agreements that were struck between the atheistic governmental leaders and the Christian priests so that the Christian priests would be given the wealth of the Soviet Union cooperation in, in, in exchange for cooperation with the atheistic governmental authorities. All of a sudden, all these patriarchs of the church and all these priests were shown to have been bought out by the Soviet leaders. And so we must acknowledge that there is a great benefit to making uh, agreements when you're in captivity. You can be very rich in captivity. All it takes is for you to give up uh, your God and go over to their gods. And so when these men had their hearts stirred in them and said to their families, we're going to go, do you think their wives and their children were all happy with this? But Dad, you know, we finally got into, you know, a good school, you know? And I have a hope of going to Yale or Princeton, you know? And now you're going to tell me that I'm supposed to go off to New Zealand or to Zambia or to Bulgaria, you know? God, certainly not. He he couldn't be telling us to do this. And these people who had their hearts stirred were probably, many of them, very wealthy. They probably had done what 
people do. They had probably built herds and flocks. They had probably built businesses. They had schools. They had uh, places of worship, uh, maybe similar to the synagogues. They had um, wives and husbands, and they had hopes of their children marrying well. And they were in the lap of luxury at the center of the greatest empire of the world at that time. And precisely then, uh, the Spirit of God stirred their hearts and they were moved by the Spirit to get up and to leave all of the benefits that they had. Now, if you think it was an easy decision, let me ask you, why do you think it is that when the Israelites were rescued from uh the Egyptians, that they so constantly complained about having been rescued and asked if they couldn't go back to Egypt. Do you remember that? For instance, in Exodus 14, it says that as the Israelites were trucking out of Egypt, all right, uh, the Passover had happened, now Pharaoh says, yeah, I'm still not going to do that. I'm going to go and I'm going to waste these guys. And he's, he's bearing down on them with all of his soldiers in his chariots. And the, the, the Israelites look. They just recently left. They'd seen the hand of God so powerfully at work. All right? And it says, the sons of Israel, Exodus 14, uh, verse 10, the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord and they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And then a couple chapters later, Exodus 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat when we ate bread to the full. We think that we're noble men, don't we? And then we say... We used to have meat. We used to have full pots. And yet here we have a small, faithful group of men whose hearts are stirred and they rise up and they take their families and they say, by God, I'm going to return to the promised land. I'm going to replace the altar. I'm going to rebuild the temple and I'm going to make Jerusalem. I'm going to make Zion my home and the home of my family. And that's the people. Second, the provision. The people are to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple of their God, the God of heaven. But as they prepare to return, they're given specific orders. And look at verse 4 with me, the second half of it. Each Jew intent on returning was to do what? He was to let the men of that place where they presently live support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, what does this remind you of? Does it remind you of anything? What? The Exodus, that's right. Uh, in fact, there are a number of things, even down to the language, that are, that are takeoffs of the Exodus that are going on here. And it does remind us of the Exodus because when Pharaoh finally allowed the children of Israel to leave Egypt, they did not leave empty-handed, did they? They left weighted down with all the wealth of their oppressors. It says in Exodus 3, 
God speaking to Moses before the Exodus, and he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians." And then in chapter 12, sure enough, the sons of Israel did according to the word of Moses. They requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have the request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so we see Cyrus, king of the Persian Empire, commanding that the people of God return to their homeland and he takes the steps necessary for their needs, for their provision. And he makes certain by what he decrees that they will be weighed down by the treasure of Persia, farewell gifts from their friends and neighbors abounding. And this is how the Lord provides for his own, just as he has promised. In Proverbs 10.3 we read, The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. And it was Jesus who said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And it was Jesus who said in Matthew 6, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the provision of the Lord. And you read on in verses Uh, 7 through 11, and you'll just see the listing of the provision that Cyrus himself gives. It's not just what each individual family gets from their neighbors. And it is amazing when you stop to think of it. Were we to set out to rebuild the temple today, do you think that we would go to the pagans and ask them to give us the treasures that would enable us to do it? You know, do you think that we would go uh, to Fort Leavenworth and ask the king of the United States to give us the gold of the nation. And if he were to give us the gold of the nation, or uh, since you can make the argument that those originally were the holy vessels, uh, let's say if our next-door neighbor, who is a Buddhist or who is Muslim, if they were to give us some of their wealth, do you think we would take it to go on the project of rebuilding the temple of God? Now, I think we'd sort of recoil and say, well, you know, it's not right that God would, it's not right that God's temple would be rebuilt with the wealth of people who don't know him and worship him. And yet what? Both with Pharaoh and today, or in this text, we see Cyrus, both of them actually, uh, their nations are the source of the wealth that allows the people of God to establish. I mean, what do you think it was they used as the wealth when they built the tabernacle out in the wilderness? It's very, very interesting. 
Now, it is true that there are times where the wealth of sin should not be used to, for the worship of God. In Deuteronomy 23:18, it says, You shall not bring the hire of a harlot or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God for any votive offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. And so there are some offerings which are, uh, they have a source that makes them an abomination brought into the household of the Lord. And yet, there are other times where God is delighted to take the money uh, of pagans, of those who are idolaters, and use it for the building of his temple. It's very interesting how God provides for the people. And here we see him through a pagan emperor and through their neighbors, some of whom were probably Jews, but it's likely that just like in Egypt, many of them were absolute pagans and it was their wealth that these people used. It was that that was the provision that God gave to his people. And then finally, the purpose. And the purpose is what? Well, when God led the sons of Israel out of Egypt, what work did he give them to do? And if you'll open your Bibles in Exodus, don't do this, but if you'll open your Bibles in Exodus and read Exodus chapters 25 through 40, you will find what? You'll find the account of the creation of the worship of the Lord God through all the details of the tabernacle. 25 through 40. Now, probably, if you are going through the Bible reading it in a year, that's the part you skip. But I want to hammer something home this morning, and my son is cynical about my uh, honesty when I say, we're coming to the end. This was a matter of joking at our table the other night, so Taylor, I hope to really be truthful now. We're coming to the end. Um, If you think about the Israelites in the wilderness and 15 chapters being given over to the building and all the details of the tabernacle. And then you go to the other places where the temple was spoken of. You go to the Gospels and see how the temple, and you know, you destroy this temple. And all right, You think of all of the worship. You think of Hebrews and the whole building and architecture of this book sort of built around the worship of God and all the tools and the details. And then what we do as evangelicals is what? We spiritualize everything. And we think surely today, the one thing we've learned is in the Old Testament, it was physical land stuff. But in the New Testament, it's all cosmic. You know, it's all about my heart. You know, and my heart is clean before God. And so all of our music and, and, and all of our worship and, and the way we think about Christianity is mystical. You know, everything is like, you know, um, well, let me say it this way. Nothing needs anything physical and fleshly and concrete and material because that's the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we're all freed up from our bodies. We're all ethereal spirits. And this is what we believe as evangelicals. We believe that it's undignified for God to use flesh. Really, if the truth were told, we think it's undignified to have 
bread and wine on this table. In fact, you know, this table is nice and it does remind me, but I can be reminded without this table. I don't need physical things. I don't need food. I don't need drink. And, and you know, it is good to obey God in, in, in the waters of baptism. We don't really need water. If you're out in the desert and there's no water, you could just use sand. You know, it's a baptism of sorts. And, you know, if God had wanted to rescue Noah and all the animals, he could have done it without an ark. You know, if Noah had decided that there wasn't enough wood and there wasn't enough time and he didn't have any nails or pegs or whatever he used, you know, God would still have made an ark. And isn't really an ark something bigger than a boat? I mean, isn't it really about God saving them? I mean, can you feel it? You know, we revolt against anything that makes faith a matter of flesh and blood and, and material and money and wood. You know, we say, no, that's Old Testament, but we worship God in spirit and in truth. All right, you see it? And that is true. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. But you know, precisely at the moment Jesus said that, do you realize what he also said? He said, salvation is of the Jews. Think about that. Are you tracking with me? At the very place where he says that we are to worship him in spirit and truth, he also says salvation is of a particular people group, a particular ethnic group, a particular race all right, a particular flesh, a particular lineage. And there's this thing about God that's really embarrassing to the modern, which is that God is particular, that God is definite, that God makes distinctions, that God uses water and he uses wine and he uses bread and he is pleased to lower himself to use the womb of a woman. And that when he comes to save us, he doesn't just sort of cosmically decree that in some sort of mystical way his son was able to transfer his wrath onto himself and bear it for the sins of the world. But God lowered himself to come in the form of flesh. He was incarnate. And he took upon himself a real body. He was made in, in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. And he actually physically died. And his blood physically poured out of him. And he was crucified. And he was dead. And he was buried. Think about that. And so today we want to have a religion that's just mystical and sort of cosmic and spiritual. And we want to think, you know, uh, things like bread and wine and water and buildings and money, uh, you know, it's obedience, but it's not really the essence of our faith. The essence of our faith is, is spiritual, spiritual. If you go into Scripture and you watch you will see that Scripture is absolutely filled with concrete reality. Okay? It was a real fruit of a real tree that they ate, and because of that, they were really naked. 
and God really made clothes, and they were really two people, Adam and Eve. See, it's not just a myth. And then Noah really had a real boat, and Lot's wife really became a pillar of salt. And fire really did come down against Sodom and Gomorrah because they were really having sex in a way that God didn't want them to, and they were really wicked. You see? It's not just about intimacy with integrity and covenantal relationships. God cares about bodies. Okay? And you keep going through all of Scripture. God really did want the ark to really be carried with poles and not really touched by the hands of a man. Okay? And when you get into the New Testament, you know, God really wanted real men to be real elders in a church. And they had to be really men. You know? And one day, Jesus Christ himself will really return even though it's taking a long time. And he will really be visible. And we will really hear the trumpet of God. And we will really stand before the judgment seat. And every deed will really become visible. It's... It's... Wonderful as I was preparing this morning that we are having communion. Because this is not just a symbol. And as we come to this table, we're not just reminded. Jesus Christ himself has promised that as we eat and drink, that he is present. And so when you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, it really matters whether or not we wait for one another. It really matters whether the rich people are getting drunk and eating to their fill while the poor people have nothing. It really matters whether you come to this table with your heart right before God. Because if you come to this table and you don't properly discern the body and Christ, the body and blood of our Lord, what does the Bible say? It says that's the reason that some of the Corinthians were really sick and really died. Think about that. God, our God, is a God of particularity and distinction and, and He has made our flesh. And He wants to redeem our flesh and the flesh of our children. And He has made a covenant with us. And so, all these things that are fleshly he delights in working. And you know, one day he will make a new heaven and a new earth. And it will be real. It won't just be a concept. And that's really important for people in a university community to get. It's not about your brain. It's not about your sentiment. It's about reality. It's about what you do with your body and your money and your house and your food, your sexuality, your children, your home. And it's about what these people really did when they got up and left and they went to do work. And we will see that work. And the work was that they built a real temple. And they started by building a real altar which pointed forward to the Lamb of God which this table points back to.